if you want to classify based on clinical effects in terms of whether it's venomous or not. Mildly venomous makes no sense. Backcountry skiing has been the fastest growing segment of skiing for quite a few years now. Welcome to the Wilderness Medicine Podcast with me, your host, Daryl Macias. Here, we get to talk to the movers and shakers of wilderness medicine and adventurers alike, giving you insight into the latest science and techniques related to wilderness medicine. Today, we're going to discuss skiing in the age of COVID. Did the pandemic increase the dangers of backcountry skiing? Then we'll go on a toxinology spin with our senior toxinology section editor, Dr. Scott Weinstein, and our assistant section editor for toxinology, Dr. Michael Levine, who will review and hash out a few articles in the December journal, Plasma Exchange for Venom-Induced Thrombotic Microangiopathy After a Hump-Nosed Pit Viper Bite, First discussing the meaning of venom, and then we'll get into that. And then we'll discuss a case report of using plasma exchange, renal replacement therapy, and hemoperfusion in a case of a massive wasp envenomation. And then a few words on amanitas. Amanita muscaria, or is it phylloides? But that'll be later. For now... This is the Colorado Avalanche Information Center with the update on current avalanche conditions for the Southern Mounts on December the 9th. Avalanche danger for today is considerable across the western San Juans and areas surrounding Wolf Creek Pass and moderate the northeast San Juans and Sangre de Cristo range. Snowfall came to an end Thursday morning. The deepest snow totals favored the southwest San Juans and areas near Red Mountain and Wolf Creek Passes. Regardless of where you are traveling, buried weak snow layers are as weak as we've seen in some time and likely to remain reactive for a bit longer. Slopes that face west through north to east are the most dangerous. On slopes with deeper snow totals more broadly distributed, avalanche size increases. Avalanches will be large enough to bury or injure you on slopes with a foot or more of recent snowfall and can break wider and deeper than you may expect. Move to slopes around 30 degrees if you see cracking in the snow or hear audible collapses. Heading into the backcountry this winter, as of this podcast, the avalanche danger is very, very high from California to Colorado. And the statistics for this season might be interesting after the pandemic, when a new batch of skiers picked up the sport. What happened during the pandemic? And with the resort closures, did we see more inexperienced skiers in the mountains? Did we see more experienced skiers get in the slides more frequently, maybe because of COVID closures? To give us some clarity on these and more issues is Dr. David Fiore, the author of an interesting paper on avalanche safety for new and experienced skiers during the pandemic. Hi, Daryl. I'm David Fiore. I'm a faculty member at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. I'm in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and I've been there for about 30 years now. I came to Tahoe, Reno for the outdoor life and to be a teacher. I, I love teaching. I've been very involved in avalanche work with the Sierra Avalanche Center as a board member and um, been very involved in wilderness medicine actually since I was a resident in Redding, California. Now in Reno, we have the first family medicine-based wilderness medicine fellowship with Tony Islas as our program director. 
I recently wrote an article about backcountry skiing and the effects COVID may have had on it. And I guess that's what we're going to discuss today. You know, avalanche safety, backcountry habits of newbie skiers, of established skiers. That's always been kind of the thing since COVID. We always worried about, well, are there going to be more incidences of avalanches because of COVID or more people taking up backcountry skiing? There's all kinds of very interesting things that you all wrote about. And I guess my first question is, is there just simply a correlation or is there an actual association between this increase in backcountry skiing that we're seeing because of the COVID-19 closures? Uh, do we know this for certain? What do you, what do you think? I'd love to say we know for certain. I'd love to say our study answered that question definitively. Of course, it's always more complicated than that. We got interested in this because there were lay reports, you know, the newspapers, even the New York Times was reporting about the explosion in backcountry skiing. Uh, we saw it here in Tahoe. I'm sure you saw it in your backcountry. It just seemed more crowded. So we wanted to really go, okay, can we get any numbers on this? And the bottom line from our, our studies suggested there was a correlation. Um, one of the things we found was about a quarter of the new skiers, a quarter to a third, depending on which question they were responding to, reported that closures or changes in ski resort procedures, crowded COVID fears led to them, led them to take up backcountry skiing. So that's a pretty clear indication that the COVID pandemic did have an effect on people's decision to get into the backcountry. We confirmed that with some other questions we asked about both their behavior and observations from more established skiers. So I think we have a pretty clear sense that, yeah, COVID affected people's decision to get into the backcountry. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right. COVID had a lot to do with it. And I, and I actually got to read that New York Times article, and I wasn't sure if it was more um, how-to backcountry ski, how to buy the stuff, what you need, how to learn backcountry skiing. It had some, I guess, backcountry ski camps, if you will, where you could do that. And do you think that may have helped people who were in that readership maybe say, you know, this sounds so cool. It's COVID. Everything's closed down. This is what I want to do. Do we have any information on that as far as you know? I'm not sure if it's, it's kind of the chicken or the egg, right? The New York Times article came out because it was blowing up. And sure, when it gets in the New York Times, that gets more people's attention. But clearly, it was already, I mean, backcountry skiing has been the fastest growing segment of skiing for quite a few years now. Now, that's also because it's so small, you can double the numbers and, you know, it's a, still a minuscule fraction of overall skiers. But it's been growing year after year. It's the most explosive growing part of skiing and snowboarding is, is backcountry. And when I say skiers, I'm including snowboarders in that. And I'm sorry, I don't want to offend any of our snowboarding friends out there, but <laughs> we tried, we tried backcountry riding, backcountry sliding, and it just, it was just easier to say skiing. So we include our snowboarding friends and, and I want to be clear on that. We learned very quickly that we needed to make alpine starts. We did not want to turn up at the trailhead of the car park at eight or nine o'clock because it was just a complete bun show. Um, 
there were it was uh, it was kind of frightening what people were kind of going about and doing people skinning up with Gucci handbags over the shoulders in Ralph Lauren ski suits with furry collars, small children uh, being pulled behind them on toboggans with the kids' skis on the backs, lots of people hiking uh, with the downhill setups uh, off into the back country. Yeah, the sport's been, been growing. I started about when you did. And yeah, it was really uncommon. We go to our most popular spot out here outside of Reno. And within two or three days, we're talking, not quite, but we joke about skiing the moguls in hourglass ball. You know, that just didn't happen 10 years ago. I think it's a good thing. I think it's great. I think the more people are doing it, the more people that are going to protect our wilderness. Mm-hmm. I think if you want solitude, you just have to go 20, 30 minutes further at least in in this area. And I think the culture is really evolving to, well, it has evolved to where being avalanche aware is is really accepted and expected. And that's really great. Because I know when I first started doing this, well, I think about some of the dumb calls I made and how lucky we were. Really, really appreciate how things have gotten a lot better. But there's room to grow, as our study actually pointed out. You did a lot of interesting things in your methodology, and you had complete data on about 4,700 respond, 4,792 respondents to be exact, and you used this online 29-question survey instrument, and then you took the respondents, you divided them into two whole cohorts, the experienced versus the inexperienced uh, backcountry skiers, and I was wondering, what was your criteria to determine who were the newbies, who were the experienced ones, and how many of these in each category actually had, you know, formal avalanche training, you know, an AVI-1 course, for instance. Right. So that was one of our key questions. How many people about avalanche training? So to answer the first part of your question about how we split them up, we did the query at the end of the uh, 2021 season and as you know, the pandemic really started in March. Well, the, the resort closures were March of 20. So it was about a season and a half in. So we considered people who started skiing in 19, who started backcountry skiing during the 1920 or 2021 season as the new cohort, because we considered them the ones that may have gotten into it because of the COVID uh, effect on the ski resorts. And, and that's really where we drew the line. It wasn't specifically experience versus novice, we were really trying to look at those who got into the sport or may have gotten into the sport due to the effects of COVID. How many of these in each of the categories, the newbie category and the more experienced user category actually had formal avalanche training through ARI or whoever else they might use, Silverton Avalanche School, whoever? found that a quarter of the newer cohort didn't have avalanche training. You know, one out of four didn't have it. Our intent is to try and follow these people up um, and see how many have gotten training since then. But many factors could have been involved. And, and, and the first is, you know, they're new at it. They just started. Maybe they didn't have time to take a course. Of course, you, you're very strongly encouraged to get the course first, get in the backcountry second. And that's part of the newer culture. 
not part of the culture when you and I started. No. The second issue is every instructor I know that was teaching avalanche courses in the 2021 season was book solid. We had the Avalanche Center give scholarships for people seeking avalanche training. And, you know, we gave out scholarships. Many of the recipients couldn't get a course. So they may have intended to take the course and just couldn't get into the course. Even that number of 25% is probably a gross underestimation because as we reported in our data, probably the biggest limitation is that most of our respondents reach this either through an avalanche center site or an educational site. And actually the educational sites were the number one referral source. So that really suggests that we're getting a group of people who already have sought out the, the education or know enough to go to the avalanche center sites. So I would estimate that the percentage of people who were newly in the backcountry who didn't have avalanche training is probably higher than the 25% we came up with. That could be, there could be the the shame factor or something like that, wanting to appear, you know, like you know what you're doing when, you know, as you know, not all avalanche training sites are, are created equal. And it was funny, somebody asked me the other day, well, you know, what do you think about an online avalanche course? And I was thinking, boy, that would not be a good idea because you have actually have to be out there and have to do the scenarios and whatnot. So that's probably not an impetus. And yeah, I agree. I've seen a lot of these courses just become overfilled. And some of these schools weren't teaching just because of COVID in and of itself. Yeah, so I think there was definitely, absolutely, there was a dearth. So I'm I'm actually really glad that you're going to follow up on some of these folks. Uh, so I guess it, was it an anonymous survey that you did or? So it was anonymous, but at the end of the survey, they had the option to give us their email and uh, link it to their survey. So that was totally, it was like after they completed the survey, another screen came up and gave them that opportunity. To be honest, you know, how life is, work, we haven't been able to find the time to go back to that data, but that's very high on my project list. Hopefully we can get back there and try and reach out to some of these people because I think it would be really interesting to figure out or to learn how many people, A, continued with backcountry skiing after the resorts opened up again, and B, of those that continued, how many of them went further and got their training? Were all the respondents pretty much a fairly good representation of people all over the world, you know, mostly North America and Europe? Were they mostly from the western part of the U.S. and Canada? What sites did you all use to recruit these individuals? It was primarily a U.S. respondent group. We had some from Canada, and we did have, it was weighted towards the west coast, but mm -hmm. western U.S., but we did have quite a few from eastern uh, states, so that, that was really good. And we, we could do that through, we had to put in their home zip code. We didn't ask them specifically where they skied. So I'm sure some of the Eastern skiers probably skied out West, but there were enough of them that, that I imagine, and some of the comments, it was clear that we had a hearty group of East Coasters, which is great. Now, we alluded to just a little bit earlier that about a quarter of the new people probably didn't partake in any sort of formal avalanche training. Do you know if all the respondents skied in groups? Were there any solo users? Uh, and do you know if any of these respondents were caught in a slide? Excellent questions. We did not ask how often they ski by themselves. I think that would be another interesting question. And as you know, 
you're never supposed to ski alone. There's actually been some good articles or some commentaries written about that. Uh, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, I once was asked, interviewed, my boys were probably six to 14, and I was interviewed about you know tragic accident that happened. And they asked me at the end of the interview, do you ever go out alone? And of course, I looked at the interviewer and was like, no, you <laughs> never, ever go out alone in the backcountry. When I came home, my kids looked at me and just laughed. Good one, Dad. <laughs> and so I would tell our listeners, if you're going to go out alone, and I think this is what's been written, is you need to dial back your, your level of skiing. You need to be on clearly non-avalanche slopes and even just difficulty, trees. You know, you can get injured by yourself and you're taking a bigger risk. I've learned, you know, I'm older. I've learned to have a lot of fun on slopes that um, I can be quite on, confident are not going to avalanche because they're 28 degrees. They're not connected to anything steep. And I just go out and have fun on those days. So when I'm touring by myself, I make sure it's a very low risk tour. That would be something to ask people about, but we did not do that in this study. You mentioned that there is about a 20% increase in backcountry use among both experienced and inexperienced users. And while the resort usage halved, those who spent man, nearly all their time in the backcountry doubled their use in the backcountry. Is that pretty consistent? And was I reading that right? Right. That's, I think you're referring to our figure three. And I'm so glad you got to that because I think that's one of the, the highlights of this study. And the way we see it is that the number of people who spend all or almost all of their time at the resort cut in half. Not really the number, we didn't ask specifically the number of days, um, but the, the, those who spent most or all of their or almost all of their time in the resort really cut back. And those who spent all or almost all of their time in the backcountry went way up. And um, again, that kind of is consistent with this switch we saw during the COVID pandemic in its early stages of people moving from the resort to the backcountry. So it sounds like that backcountry use has probably become more popular. I mean, thanks to COVID-19, thanks to marketing campaigns too. I mean, just like climbing, it's become very popular, more of the gym climbing, but all these outdoor types of sports, I think have become more popular. Do you know if there was an increase in burials, rescues, or deaths from the years that you all studied? And were you able to actually factor in the snowpack in this study? That'd probably be a pretty big ask. Right. Do. So um, unfortunately, the 2021 season was a disaster from an avalanche point of view. Um, I think it may have been 37, 36 or 37 deaths in the, in the U.S., much higher than previous years. But that was also the year we had that widespread, really unstable, persistent weak layer. So there, and it was in the news a lot, actually. And that was something we asked people about was how did that affect their decision making? So it gets fairly complicated. Most people actually said it didn't affect their decision making much. The, the reported avalanches, which surprised us because you hear about avalanches, people dying, you would think that would affect your decision making. There was also the increased number of deaths. There was the increase in the newer skiers. But interestingly, consistent with previous year trends, most of the fatalities were experienced skiers. So it was one of those things where 
two things are true, but not related. Um, mm-hmm. There was an increase in fatalities. There was an increase in new skiers. Luckily, we had more data that showed the people, unfortunately, the people that were dying were actually experienced skiers. And that's been happening for years now. And that's something that those of us who work with avalanche centers and are interested in teaching are really puzzled with because these are people that should know better. Um, you know, we, we tried to query people with it. Well, maybe the, the terrain is getting more crowded. So people are going further out and pushing their limits. The experienced skiers reported they didn't really go further out because that was that was one of our um, hypotheses. Mm-hmm. So we asked that and they said, no, they weren't touring further from the trailhead than usual. So that kind of goes counters that argument. We're not really sure what caused that. Fortunately, last year we did see a drop back down to a, a lower number of avalanche fatalities. So it seemed like that was a spike, probably due mostly to just the horrific snowpack we had. I kind of wonder too if more experienced users who've had an at least an AVI two uh, level of training probably think you know I've got some expertise. I think this is okay. Maybe they take more chances. I mean, we've posited that maybe those who've had no avalanche training or those who maybe just had the level one are a little more cautious. And if you're, you know, two or above, I don't know if you take more risks. It's really hard to say, but you're absolutely right in that according to CAIC data, 37 were killed in the 2020-2021 season. And it was an abominable snowpack, not just here, but I know in Europe it was pretty crazy too. And last year it went down to 17, but, you know, and a lot of these, as I look at this are in the, you know, more, not so much the maritime snowpack, which is what you guys have, but our continental snowpack, it's really this light, fluffy, faceted snow. It's just horrible. That's a complicated thing. You should have seen me bra. I was smooth like butter. It was signer nerve blower cold smoke face shots all the way down. Then I like set off an avalanche. We nearly died. It was way crazy. Sounds dangerous. Maybe you should get some avalanche education? We don't need that. We are like experts. We dance with a big guy in the white coat all the time. We are out ripping the pow pow all the time. We are experts on snow. Having some avalanche education would help keep you safe. It would help you see dangers and help you choose safe terrain. Are you effing kidding me? Avalanche education is for snow geeks. I am not a snow geek. Do you know how fat my skis are? I don't rock 120 underfoot to ski a wind-scoured crap fest. We dance with a white death. It is who we are. Besides I carry a transceiver so it's all good. I am safe to ski anything. Cause if the white death sucks me under Jake has a shovel tied to his back with stickers on it and he will dig me out. And I will be fine. You don't have to ski wide scoured slopes. That is not what terrain selection is about. Right now it sounds like you are just taking potluck. You can't shred the nerve if you have a busted femur, can you? You sound smart. Maybe you know what you're talking about. Will you teach me your avalanche avoiding kung fu? Okay, we'll see. Your ski pants are way too baggy. It does not make any sense. They are so baggy I can see the crack in your butt. So you'll have to ski way behind me on the mountain so people don't think we're together.
a great team working on, on this article. Uh, Jordi Hendricks and Jerry Johnson out of Montana State really helped us, they're co-authors on this. And then those of us at the University of Nevada, Reno, and Esteban Veje was a co-author and actually the lead author on this study. Um, so I, I want to give a shout out to them. And then uh, Spencer Trivet and Andrew Coburn were uh, student authors on this as well. Um, but uh, Yordi and Jerry did some, some work, have done a lot of work over the years on decision-making backcountry. And it, it's really interesting and some work out of Sweden also that experienced backcountry skiers have a better ability and, and more reasonable assessment of terrain and terrain difficulty, complex terrain versus not complex terrain. But they also tend to push the limits sometimes. Mm. And that's real concerning. The good news is uh, specifically study out of Sweden showed that having people take an avalanche course, they do learn how to assess avalanche terrain. In other words, many studies that they go with basically not avalanche terrain, perfectly flat meadow, simple terrain, you've got a slope, you can judge it, um, and complex terrain where you've got a lot of different decisions to make, different angles, terrain traps. And being able to determine what kind of terrain you're dealing with is, is critical in backcountry skiing. And an avalanche course actually can improve your decision-making with that. There were actually four main findings in, in this study that I want the listeners to know about. Uh, can you comment on what those four main findings were? You know, I think we talked about some of these. The, the first one really is, it seems pretty clear there was a boom in backcountry skiing on top of its already preceding boom due to COVID. Um, as we talked about previously, I, we can't directly say causation, but I think our findings uh, suggest a pretty strong, quite, I would say fairly strong case for causation, not just correlation with the uh, people saying, up to a third of them saying the resort changes pushed them into the backcountry or got them into the backcountry. I think another really important finding is how many backcountry skiers didn't have avalanche training. Um, we talked about the 25% approximately of the new skiers and some of the causes for that. There was still a fairly large percentage of experienced skiers that hadn't had uh, avalanche training. And I think that's something for concern. Um, as we mentioned, some of the you know, preponderance of the deaths have been in experienced skiers. So perhaps refresher courses for people who either had their training a long time ago or have been doing it a long time and have a lot of knowledge, but maybe need some new training. Um, mm. and as uh, We didn't discuss this, but as you know, avalanche courses have gotten away from getting everybody into a pit and looking at snow crystals. So mm. I can see the old people, my cohort, you know, like, oh, you know, I, I know a lot about snow. I know a lot about snow crystals, but really it's decision-making. And I think we can all have refreshers on that. A little bit of a tangent, one of my passions, uh, you know, as you know, I teach at the university and I've really enjoyed tying together. I teach a course, clinical reasoning and decision-making. Mm. Kind of the thought process that goes into clinical medicine, decision-making and a backcountry. I just love the connection there. It, it oh, really fascinating. I'm, I am with you. I believe that avalanche courses helps me in the resuscitation. I, I'm, I'm behind you on that. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so there's real link there. Another, probably to me, the most uh, crucial thing, and I don't think we've really discussed it yet, is the self-assessment of their of skiers' confidence in various types of avalanche terrain. So we ask people, are you comfortable assessing terrain um, or how comfortable are you assessing terrain 
not at all in simple ter avalanche terrain, in complex avalanche terrain, or in all terrain. Mm. And surprisingly, two-thirds of the new skiers, new backcountry skiers, were comfortable in simple terrain. And maybe that was a terminology we made it sound too easy. Over a quarter, approximately a quarter of new skiers were comfortable in complex terrain, which really even simple terrain has a lot to, to determine whether you should be skiing there because you've got all the snow factors. I'm not sure I'm really that good in complex terrain. You know, I, I know to back off. About half of the experienced skiers felt very confident in complex terrain. And so I think there's some overconfidence in people's mm. ability. The newbies, you know, you can you can say it's the Dunning-Kroger effect. You know, they don't know what they don't know. Right. But the more experienced people, I'm beginning to think they don't know what they don't know either. And that's a little It's non-event reinforcement. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, you, you mentioned it before, you know, skiing is it's a high stakes random reinforcement event. You know, you, you ski a slope and you have this wonderful powder experience. You don't realize that had you been 10 feet to the right, you would have gone over a shallow area, triggered a big slide. So you, you get the wrong reinforcement. And I think that's a real danger and something that our study kind of maybe highlighting and something that would be interesting for future research to delve into. Yeah, the lack of avalanche training, the feeling that, yeah, I know what I'm doing versus the inexperienced person not feeling as confident. Those are very interesting. And I think we've probably in avalanche education, we've kind of known that, but I think that your paper is able to actually put this in ink during a very important uh, period of world history. And that, you know, people are going to find a way to do what they will do. <laughs> and you can't tell me otherwise. So that's very interesting. I guess the other big thing to, to point out is we only looked at backcountry skiers and snowboarders. Backcountry snow machine use is, is exploding. And they're really, unfortunately, catching up to skiers and fatalities. And that's another really important area that I hope somebody else uh, really delves into with some research because uh, working with my avalanche center and, and our snow machine users, I'm just, I'm sad that so many of them are dying, but I'm actually impressed that it's not more than it is because those mm -hmm. people can cover a you know, hundred times more ground than I can cover. And um, their decision-making is a whole nother world, the way they have to do it. So, and they're like 10 years behind us in this snow study avalanche training. It's just now becoming the norm that if you're on a snowmobile in the backcountry, you need to have avalanche training. You know, we were there about 10 years ago as skiers and riders. So I think that that's uh, been really important. Yeah. Have you guys, by the way, I'm just thinking, have you presented any of this data to the International Snow Science Workshop? We um, have a paper coming out in TAR, the Avalanche Review. I am hoping we will be able to present it. There hasn't been an Avalanche workshop since this came out due to COVID. So mm -hmm. the uh, next workshop is in Bend in 2023. And hopefully we'll see you there. Here's some interesting findings summarized in our discussion on the paper. First, both new and experienced backcountry skiers reported spending more of their time in the backcountry since the pandemic started. Secondly, for many changes in ski area operations, while that was a significant factor for this increase, meaning that ski areas closed and so people went into the backcountry more. Thirdly, this cohort of inexperienced backcountry skiers expressed less confidence in their ability 
to assess avalanche risk than the experienced cohort, but what is interesting is that most of the fatalities in the 2020 and the 2021 season were from experienced backcountry skiers looking at the statistics. And it just happened to be a year with a very dangerous snowpack, much like what we're seeing now. Look into this and you'll see that most of these deaths were actually, yes, from people with a lot of experience. The most important question to ask is, how do you get a person with 10 years of backcountry skiing experience, for instance, to really determine if their decision-making is good? And almost a quarter of new backcountry skiers lacked any formal avalanche education. And there's some more anecdotal data that came out of Colorado, which saw a 60% increase in alpine touring setups heading out the door. But there didn't seem to be a commensurate increase in purchase of a beacon or other types of safety gear necessary for exploring the backcountry. So, in short, be safe, practice or upgrade your avalanche rescue skills, and be cautious of others because they may not have the experience and potentially could trigger a slide. It's winter. Why discuss talks? Well, there were a good amount of submissions in the journal this December, but first, Toxinology, toxicology, what's the difference? Well, simply stated, toxicology has to do with average poisons, sorry, don't be average, and other substances with the examination of adverse effects caused by chemicals, radiation, etc. on living systems. Toxinology is based around toxins mostly from plants and animals, microorganisms that link biochemistry, molecular biology, anatomy, and pharmacology. Now, you could argue that your local poison center has a toxicologist ready to help you treat that next rattlesnake envenomation. And it would appear that toxinology takes things a little further, defining something like, what is venom? Does a substance have to affect a human to be classified as venom? Well, let me give you the first article that's up for discussion. Therapeutic plasma exchange for venom-induced thrombotic microangiopathy following hump-nosed pit viper bites, a prospective observational study by Ratnayaka. He's out of Sri Lanka. So thrombotic microangiopathy, TMA, and you're going to hear that term, TMA, is a triad of acute kidney injury, AKI, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, MAHA, and thrombocytopenia. This is a rare complication of snake bites. And in Sri Lanka, it's commonly seen with hump-nosed pit viper bites. The researchers conducted a prospective observational study of patients with AKI caused by the hump-nosed pit viper. Now, some patients at this hospital in Sri Lanka with TMA underwent therapeutic plasma exchange, TPE is what they call it in the article. And some didn't. These two groups were compared, and they found that there were 52 or 8% of patients with TMA, thrombotic microangiopathy, of whom 21 or 45% were in this therapeutic plasma exchange, this TPE group, and 26 or 55% were in the non-TPE group. TPE improved the time to correcting the platelets, time to MAHA correction. Basically, MAHA is when your red blood cells just break apart. And also time to 
prothrombin time, the PT and the INR correction, and the time to 20-minute old blood clotting test correction, something that we'll talk about a little later. Renal recovery was also predicted by TPE and the highest creatinine level. Now, the TPE, the therapeutic plasma exchange, didn't improve the number of blood transfusions, but the authors conclude that TPE is effective in TMA in the early correction of platelet counts, MAHA, PTINR, and the whole blood clotting test 20 in a hump nose pit viper bite. So here, to start our discussion on this paper, is Dr. Scott Weinstein, who's in the land of plenty right now at this time. And he is a clinical toxinologist. He's a herpetologist and professor of family medicine, currently based out of Adelaide, Australia. Now, before this interview, we were on an offline discussion about Scott, his upbringing in Brooklyn, his interest in herpetology, and an extensive background in snake venom characteristics, and as well as his primary care practice, working with the U.S. Army Medical Research for Infectious Diseases, as well as NYU as a postdoc, and his work in an STD clinic in Adelaide. First, Scott, what is venomous? And then let's segue into this paper. I have a colleague, uh, we've been at odds at times, but I'm happy to say we're back on good terms, um, who's up in Queensland, named Brian Fry, who um, has you know, professed, and along with a, the idea of this concept from my very good friend, Nicholas Vidal, who is a snake taxonomist, about the toxicophora, which is a separate uh, clade. Clade. C-L-A-D-E is a group of organisms that have a common ancestor, roughly speaking. It is not K-L-A-I-D, which is someone who smells bad and wears the same clothes every day. Of reptiles that are all classed together with considering a synaptomorphy, a shared trait, that they're all venomous, which infers that venom evolved once among all squamate reptiles. That means that many species that we view as non-venomous are actually venomous. For example, by this hypothesis of this clade, things like alligator lizards, for example, are technically venomous, mm. okay? Uh, but of course, we have no biological evidence that's factual. This is based on molecular systematics and an interpretation of what venom actually is or isn't. And, and so um, the idea here is to consider what venomous means. And in the way of this clade, there's a large number of species, and particularly some Australian pythons, which is still relevant to the topic, um, you know, of what venom is and how venom is used. Some, some Australian monitor lizards, for example, produce, uh, have been reported subjectively produce pain when they bite people, um, and the pain lasts. It's persistent. So that's considered by some to be possibly evidence of defensive venom use. So to make a long story short, there's few places in the world where you can actively investigate unusual effects of bites on people that occur more frequently with a good, well-developed Western medical system than Australia, which is actually an Asian country occupied by Europeans, really. So, um, so it, it allows the opportunity to investigate some of this. And I want to point out immediately without going into this, we're going to talk about this for hours. Uh, the one thing that's important to the whole concept of the discussion that we are intending to have is that 
Venom is always misinterpreted and defined incorrectly, often by medical personnel, because people say that was a venomous bite. And that was a very highly venomous snake. But you see, that is anthropomorphic, not only anthropomorphic, but it's biologically inaccurate because snakes and other venomous animals couldn't care less about us. We have no role in their evolution at all. So we should not be stating venomous bite. We should be stating a medically significant bite by a venomous animal because the venoms were evolved for either self-defense against predators, which we have little evidence of, by the way. More of the time, it's, they have been evolved for subjugation and, uh, and the procurement of prey. And the issue here is many American clinical toxicologists have a kind of a, um, a tendency to consider venom action in rapid prey death because our pit vipers will bite an animal, release it, the animal will walk off, it'll drop dead, and then the pit viper will trail it and feed on it. One of my very great, unfortunately, late friends, he died, unfortunately, at a fairly young age, was David Chisar at Boulder. And he was doing very interesting experiments, as a few other people have done. They were doing things like taking piles of mice. They were having a mouse bitten by a rattlesnake and then taking that mouse after it died and dropping it into a pile of other mice where they cover with perfume and cologne. Mm -hmm. And the rattlesnake would come over, pick out the one it bit and swallow it. Huh. So venoms are doing other things that right. we have less recognition of. But the point is, to as a, a quick last comment on this, because I can go on a long time, as I said, venoms are actually should be determined by biological terminology, not by our subjective medical interpretations as to their potency. Because most venoms have been tested in the lab on mammals. Most many snakes do not feed on mammals. They feed on lizards and other reptiles or fish or frogs. And those venoms are more directed towards the procurement of those prey. When they bite us, if we happen to get an effect, that we are an incidental accident of the effect of the venom. That's what happens. And it just so happens that species that often feed on prey that are dangerous, potential retaliatory, uh, lethal response to being preyed upon, such as, let's say, an inland taipan in uh, the tableland of Australia, which is considered, quote, the most vent toxic venomous snake known. Yet, I've treated a couple of bites by those, and nobody's ever died from one. They've had very severe, very close, but nobody's ever died from one. But the key point is, is that the venom is extremely potent against rats that live in burrows because the snake goes down headfirst into the burrow, bites the rat, capable of very, very lethal retaliatory uh, response, and the rat dies within a second or two, a couple of seconds. Right, but you're, so you're talking about a, maybe more of a um, zoonotic type of venom efficacy, right? Versus what toxicologists here in the States would say, you know, it's more anthropomorphic. This is what venom does to us. And therefore we classify that venom as being strong, lethal, powerful. Right, right. But it's but we should go back wrong. to the animal models. Is that what you're saying? It's, bio, it's biologic. It's biologically inaccurate because what mm -hmm. you're saying is, is that, for example, if you get bitten by a hognose snake, the most mm -hmm. popular pet snake in the United States and in Europe, right? About yeah. one out of 10 people, one out of 15 people get one that gets very activated by olfactory stimulation from uh, a person handling a toad or a mouse in the case of a Western hognose before feeding it. The hognose will latch on 
because of a prey response and will, you know, will advance the jaws a bit, that person may have a significant envenoming, local envenoming, right? But to say that that is a venomous bite is actually wrong on a couple of reasons. Because number one, we don't really have evidence that hognose snakes use their venom, which I would call them venomous biologically. We don't have evidence that they use their venom to eat, let's say, a mouse or a or a particular a, a small amphibian, because they literally grab on and just swallow, continue to swallow until the prey is is swallowed. So biologically, the term may not mean the same thing for each species being used in a different way. And then we're an incidental product. So the venom is not directed against us. It's not biologically evolved in order to bite humans. So it is a medically significant bite by a venomous snake, not a venomous bite because the venom is not directed against us. That's yeah, what I'm saying. If you want to be really specific biologically, Authors that submit manuscripts to several journals and also in particular Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal are sometimes authors who have worked on a lot of other things and they find one interesting snake bite or right. one interesting mushroom, right? And they submit that coming from a completely different point of view, but to the clinical toxinology people or herpetology audience who are familiar with these terms of go, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Here's Dr. Michael Levine. He is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, and in charge of the toxicology consulting program at UCLA and its affiliated hospitals. What do you think, Michael? What would you say coming from LA is what Scott's <laughs> saying? Do you, do you believe this? Do you take issue with this or do you have any comments? And so a couple of things. I'm saying I certainly understand what Scott's saying. I certainly think there's different ways of classifying it. I think you could it depends somewhat more if you want to classify it based on its structure and its and its versus if you want to classify it based on clinical effects in terms of whether it's venomous or not. I think there's different ways that one could classify it, and I don't know that one is more right than the other. Um, so Scott certainly gives a very valid argument in terms of for how to classify uh, something as venomous. I think there's different ways. One could, that's certainly a valid way of classifying it. Other people like to classify it based on clinical effects, um, right? There's certainly several, many animals that are venomous that don't actually cause substantial problems to humans, where it causes problems to, to animals as well. So you could classify and so you could, it's a, it means to small animals. So you could classify them different ways. And I think that there's just different ways people like to classify them. Well, well, in that, in, 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 just as a response to, in, to mm -hmm. what Michael said there, it, mildly venomous makes no sense. Because that's stating that they're mildly venomous to us, but if it bites a frog, the frog's dead. So that's not, that's that, like, for example, people all the times with my particular subspecialty, which is non-front fang species, which are often incorrectly called rear fang snakes. The point here is that if you use the word mildly venomous, that is an anthropomorphic evaluation of what that snake's venom is, but to a lizard being bitten, that lizard is dead. Understood. So, Again, so that, that goes back to if you're classifying yeah. it based on effects on humans versus if you're classifying it based on from an anthropological basis. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm saying, Michael, is just that venom itself shouldn't be classed by humans as being that it's a venomous bite because that, that's just not a biological accurate term. We have to have an objective accuracy in herpetology and toxinology towards substances. So 
what we can say is we have a medically significant bite from a, well, a moderately severe, mildly, a mild bite, a severe bite, a moderately severe bite from a venomous species, as opposed to saying it's a severely, highly venomous bite. That just biologically doesn't make sense. So, for example, uh, relevant to the issue, exchange plasmapheresis is frowned upon by most clinical toxinologists, including myself, mm -hmm. because there's been some Tina Nutos and out of Jeff Ispister's group in, in New South Wales have done a meta-analysis kind of, of plasmapheresis mm -hmm. in snake bite. And right. it's a, it, they did a good study and it really shows there's no, there's no advantage. Uh, and there was another one done in Sri Lanka on specifically on hypnoli, hypnoli, which is hump nose uh, pit viper, the relevant one for this paper. And they found also there was no real advantage to it. But these authors demonstrated what I thought was a, a decently done study that suggests that we need to look at this because there's no antivenom of any kind against this genus. There are no antivenoms against this species, these species. So the authors understandably, which is also something that I put in a commentary I wrote, tried to do what they could for the patient, not going for the broader basis of what evidence-based medicine uh, showed from clinical trials and so forth. In random con controlled trials, we have that good standard <coughs> A evidence. You've also got the ob observations from the practitioner who are treating the patients, their, uh, their accumulated experience and an interpretation of the results and outcomes. And then third, you've got patient expectations. I'd like to live through this. All of that comes into evidence-based medicine. And so I think that in some cases, unfortunately, there's gotten to uh, this very strong focus on one tier of the three, mm -hmm. ignoring the others and trying to filter out what we consider to be bad medicine. Whereas in some cases, in desperate situations, people try other things that are still safe to the patient in practice, but may not be effective. And that's our job is to try and filter out that wheat from the chaff. Michael, if you have a, a differing idea, if you agree with that, what you think of actually the idea of therapeutic plasma exchange for this particular species, this hump-nosed pit viper, and thrombotic microangiopathy. I tend to agree with Scott on this, uh, what, on what he said. Uh, I think that it's it's interesting paper. It's more hypothesis generating. I don't know this should become certainly like a right. standard of care. This is what you should do. This is right. an interesting hypothesis generating paper that people could keep in the back of their mind as something that may or may not work and may or may not be available. But I don't know that it would certainly, I wouldn't put more into it than it's a hypothesis generating paper. It actually brings up the idea of therapeutic plasma exchange. Here we talk about antivenin, and that's just about it. You can give Crofab or Anavip. Some of these parts of the world where we don't have an antidote, I mean, I think this was actually pretty legitimate, and they did their best to save the patients that they had. And For also, sure. I think I would be very cautious about extrapolating anything from this species of snake to anything that's seen in North America, though, mm -hmm. just because the toxicities are so vastly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, they're all in di they're all different circumstances and species to species have huge variability as our Mojave rattlesnake does, for example, um, you know, where in, uh, in, like say in central Arizona, a bite from a Mojave rattlesnake will be, 
will produce some coagulopathy, some local effects. Very unusually will produce very much else. But if you go into, let's say, uh, along the California border near Yuma, and you're in that area over there and you get bitten by uh, some populations of a Mojave rattlesnake, which look identical, essentially, with very few differences to those in the central, you will have presynaptic neurotoxicity very likely be uh, intubated. And Crofab or Anavip really, well, usually don't have very much effect, largely because they're given a bit too late. And the presynaptic action is already under, under, uh, underway and there's just no way to interrupt it except intubation, have the person ride it out until theoretically their motor end plate regenerates. We, we have a, a different circumstance in each particular scenario. Now, also, we also know that TMA is not improved with antivenom. So even if you had antivenom against it, the TMA is not going to respond to that. Neither is thrombocytopenia. It seems that there's an event that occurs that either inhibits the hemopoiesis or more likely does some kind of toll-like receptor elimination, st stimulation, and then elimination of the altered platelets, and they are splenically cleared. And then, as we know, they, uh, platelets have about, uh, about a 10-day duration in the circulation. And so we're in this process, as we all know, to constantly produce and replenish platelets from the, the stimulation of their decline. But yet with rattlesnake bites, brown snake bites, this is a global situation. When you get these precipitous thrombocytopenia, uh, I had a, a case of brown snake bite here a couple of years ago where the platelets were four. And so uh, they can drop to the point of almost total extinction. And then you have to give platelets as a role to present the, the likelihood of active bleeding. But the, what happens? After that infusion is completed, they disappear within a very short period of time again. So it takes about 10 days or so, seven to 10 days, for those to really start to achieve the normal levels where they were previous to pre-envenomation or envenoming. Some effects of these venoms just occur and we have to treat the patient supportively and you can't just change the effect by doing an intervention. We also know that the longer that TMA persists, the longer the AKI continues as well. So that's the key point. There's a correlation between the TMA and the AKI. And that's the reason why I think in this case, these authors said, we got to try something. What is the role of an antivenin just in general? Because you alluded to the myokinia, you know, the neuromuscular junction derangements. So, you know, just for our, re our, our readers, our listeners, uh, what then would be the role of antivenin? How successful have we been with some of these uh, antivenins or the development of them for these Asian snakes? There was a project here that was a combined project through the Women's and Children's Hospital and the University of Adelaide and, and University of Oxford for trying to get a new antivenom for Burma, or if you will, Myanmar, uh, because the Eastern Russell's viper there, which is Deboya siamensis, it was responsible, if I recall the exact number, somewhere around 35 to 40% cases of renal failure in the country. Extremely common cause of snake by one of the major so-called big four in the world that caused the most deaths throughout Asia, particularly. The problem there was something that's, you know, that doesn't usually occur from the Western approach. It turned out that one of the big problems was horse mortality, which, you know, in, in drug companies in the U.S. and in most Western countries is not really an issue because the veterinary care of the horses is so carefully standardized that um, they would be it would be unusual that, that would contribute to the main cause, except if you can't find the right dose to immunize them, obviously. But the horses were in such bad 
constitutional health that they couldn't handle the bleeding and the constant immunization, the hyperimmunization. It turned out that at points they were going out in the countryside and just randomly collecting horses and donkeys and bringing them in and using them for immunization. But with the improvement of that, the antivenom production and its efficacy went straight up. And so the problem is, is really production facilities, standardization, and the consistency of production in countries that are just economically challenged in much more simplistic ways than to worry about this. As a primary care doctor, unlike the ED doctors, Daryl, like you and, and Mike, you know, I'm, I'm a primary care physician by, by, by my fellowship, you know, and I was noticing, I mean, how about diabetes management, hypertension? I mean, you can go down snake bite. They're dying of snake bite in many places unnecessarily from the lack of appropriate resources and so forth. And like you said, antivenom, you know, efficacy and availability, but also transport to the hospital, which is on 10, in many cases, tends to be on a scooter where a person's thrown on the back. They, you know, they're semi-conscious and, you know, their basic constitutional health, which gives them a lower chance, even with moderate envenoming, a diabetic, you know, poor control with uh, peripheral vascular disease. It's all not managed. So the problems go way beyond uh, and are just overwhelming. Here's the next paper, Hybrid Blood Purification in the Treatment of Multiple Organ Dysfunction Syndrome Following a Wasp Attack by Rongzhi Yu in China. Now, this is a case report. The paper states that severe wasp sting symptoms can progress rapidly, often causing multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, and in some cases, death. Early and comprehensive treatment is needed to avoid these outcomes. Here, the authors report a case of a patient with multiple organ dysfunction syndrome due to severe wasp things, 106 to be exact. The patient received conventional treatment combined with glucocorticoids, plasma exchange, hemoperfusion, and continuous renal replacement therapy and had a successful outcome. Multiple organ dysfunction syndrome is a serious potential complication of wasp stings. Early local wound treatment, anti-allergy interventions, anti-shock therapy, fluid replacement, glucocorticoid administration, and blood purification treatments are required to treat multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, secondary to wasp stings. The results that the authors had suggest that a hybrid blood purification method, meaning Plasma exchange combined with hemoperfusion and continuous renal replacement therapy is more clinically effective than the single blood purification method. Early use of high-dose glucocorticoids with a hybrid blood purification treatment method has a positive effect in managing the patient and may improve prognosis of other patients with multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. And as I read through it, I was thinking a wasp attack and what kind of gave me a red flag was that they talked about removing the stingers. Can you comment on that? Was it a wasp? I don't read Chinese. Yeah, I think that there was a bit of a problem. I think what happened there was that in some cases, those were, you're absolutely right. They were, the terminology meant that those insects were clinging to the person and stinging and they had to literally forcibly take them off because that's a very, there's oh. several species and they, they, there was difficulty in identifying in some of these cases, which is always a weakness in these papers. Sometimes the envenoming species is not identified. And I tend to, 
not accept those papers because we need to stop that to get those mm -hmm. in the literature because we don't know really what they're saying. It's only with really, really profound papers such as this that sometimes that expectation is lowered a little bit because of the dramatic interventions. They are, they are not the only group that have done this. It's well known, in, in particularly in some Asian and in, um, in Taiwan, where they've followed the same type of approach to it. I think that in this case, when you have a mass sting, which could be anywhere from 10 to 1,000 stings, they are overwhelmed. And in many cases, they have received a pheromone and recruited all of these attacks. And they literally just are persistent. They will stay on the person and keep stinging. Because as you correctly stated, unlike that, they have an intact stinger. And so they can just stay and sting. Absolutely correct, Daryl. They first talked about giving this jittishing snake tablet to reduce the wound edema. And, you know, the problem with the study is we don't know what kind of proprietary compound that is, but it's probably fairly common in that part of the world to give some sort of a Chinese medication along with what we would call a Western allopathic type of medication. And I don't know if that influenced the patient favorably or not. The authors say well, it didn't. Right, but. right. The authors were asked that directly to identify it. They were asked directly to identify ah. it. What are the components, even if they were separate plants, what plants went into it, and also whether or not they felt it either adversely or benefited the patient. And that's why they have a statement in there in response stating that we don't think it affected the clinical course and we don't know what's in there. Unfortunately, as you correctly point out, all through, you know, in India as well, there are loads of uh, mendicants that are given by local persons who will just do anything, local healers, quote unquote. We have no idea in many cases what they've actually been given. Hmm. We do know that in some cases it adversely affects the course of the, of the person. We do know that in some cases. So, I mean, in your experience, what would you have done for this particular patient? I mean, it sounds like the patient was undergoing multiple organ failure. We talked about, they talk about the liver, they talk about the, uh, the hemoglobin, the platelets, they alkalinize the urine because the patient was having a myoglobinuria, kidney failure. There's a whole basket of things going up until the patient became encephalopathic, dementation was going down the tube. They wanted to intubate this patient. The family said, no, thanks, please. And the patient ends up getting melanin. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on here. Did either of you, could you make any sense of the treatment? Was it sound? Was it not sound? I th I'm saying, I think we know certainly from, if you look at like the massive hymenopteran venomations that we see, like with the so-called killer bees, obviously the, the venom, the, the bees are slightly different between a wasp and a typical honeybee. But one of the things that you see is you get a lot of melatonin inserted and, in the, and that's what you're seeing this large anaphylactoid type reaction. This is a fairly common type of massive envenomation syndrome that you're seeing that's described. We see this with our, with our in the US, we see this not that commonly, but certainly not uncommonly with our massive hymenoptera. The overall amount of melatonin is larger with wasps than it is with honeybees. And therefore, you need probably a little bit less, a little bit less uh, number of the wasps in order to get kind of the same general to uh, toxicity that you're going to see. But you're going to see multi-system organ failure. From a neuro standpoint, you could certainly see patients have seizures. They could get CNS depression. From a cardiovascular standpoint, they're often tachycardic and hypotensive. They often have troponins in the two or three range. 
they get profound GI illness where they get a lot of vomiting and diarrhea, and that could lead to ATN. It's also directly, directly nephrotoxic by itself. You could get rhabdo. You certainly get the ATN and the, uh, the overall renal failure. You can get a hemolytic anemia associated with it. So this is the typical pattern that you're going to see with massive hymenoptera envenomations. One of the big things that's been things like antihistamines in general are not all that effective in this case. The only thing that's somewhat been shown to be beneficial is steroids. So in this case, they're using, they're using, they gave glucocorticoids. They used a whole bunch of different things kind of simultaneously. They use this hybrid blood, what they're describing is this hybrid blood purification. It's not clear to me what role, if any, that had. This is the natural course that you see of a massive hymenoptera envenomation, and they often go in to get renal failure. So it's a little hard to say that one thing changed or one version was more effective than another for a form of renal replacement when you have an N of one and you gave things that are potentially known to be beneficial, such as steroids. Certainly the steroids are much better or more efficacious early on when you give it before they get profound toxicity. So in massive hymenopter envenomations, when you're starting to get vomiting and diarrhea and you're starting to show other manifestations, you really should give them high-dose corticosteroids early on, um, as opposed to waiting until they're already in multi-system organ failure. The yield is probably lower on that at that point. But I don't know that we could really say much about this case report, that one, certainly not that one is more effective, and I don't know that you could say it's even effective at all compared to just supportive care. Pardon my pun, but I think there's a kangaroo in the closet. Later on, the authors described that the patient went hypotensive and they gave dopamine. And all the while, while I was reading this, I was thinking, where is the epi? What do you think of that? Was that something that they should have used, should not have used? I mean, we even have guidelines and there's a lot of good literature supporting. I think epi would have been a much more useful. I'm saying it's hard for me to stand back, which is stand here now when I wasn't there and taking care of the patient to to really comment or criticize the care, certainly from thousands of miles away. Having said that, if this person was in the U.S., I think the first line therapy would have been epinephrine. Yeah, I would say that that's definitely, definitely a valid point. Uh, the the only thing is is I also agree completely with the uh, with the use of glucosteroids because mm-hmm. the glucocorticoids because quite frankly if you give it intravenously the peak time of activity is still forty five minutes fifty minutes away up to an hour and so if you get a person in that kind of distress already by the time you gave that that steroid like I question how much it's really going to do which is why this patient declined very rapidly by the time they were already trying to intervene yeah and what was interesting too is. They alluded to how in China they treat anaphylaxis, and it didn't make too much sense to me. But here we go with here's how we treat mild envenomations, moderate envenomations, severe envenomations. And this is something that we're alluding to in the last paper. You know, how do you classify mild, moderate, or severe? Is it from a biological model? Is it from a human model? And nowhere in that, I guess, the Chinese consensus did they mention epinephrine which i thought was you know kind of interesting maybe it's a practice variation over there certainly glucocorticoids are very good they're evidence 1c definitely epinephrine i would have liked to have seen that one thing i would like to point out though is they're saying and what they this is not an anaphylactic reaction it's an anaphylactoid reaction and it's just kind of semantics to some extent but not really right? Anaphylactic is IgE mediated with prior sensitization. Anaphylactoid is not. 
these patients get anaphylactoid reactions, even if they've never been envenomated before, not because they have IgE circulating, but because they just have a whole lot of melatonin being injected into the body at once. So it has nothing to do with the, if it's anaphylactic, that implies that this patient is, has been, been stung before, they have antibodies, one episode, is get, they could get stung by one wasp again, and we'll have the same problem. That's not the case. It's an anaphylactoid reaction due to massive hymenopter envenomations. So in the, when we see these patients, whether it's a wasp or a honeybee or whatever, it's not one sting that you have to start worrying about, are they going to hemolyze from? Even if they have an anaphylactic reaction, that's not going to be their typical scenario. They may have the laryngeal edema. They may have the GI symptoms. They're not typically going to get hemolysis from an anaphylactic reaction. It's part of the overall anaphylactoid reaction that you're seeing from the massive hymenoptera that you're that you're encountering in this scenario. I just have to disagree with the terminology because in the International Allergy Congress in 2002, uh, 2002 or 2003, totally rejected the use of the term anaphylactoid. Because, and the reason why is because they stated, and I believe absolutely correctly so, that whether you get cross-linkage of IgE or not, you still get the same effects as hypersensitivity. And we happen to know, for example, in the burrowing asps, atratasbus, in the Palestine viper, Deboya palestinae, we know that there is primary anaphylaxis, which used to be called anaphylactoid, meaning the person never had an exposure to it. It's kind of like what we see with contrast media. A person who is first exposed to this winds up getting the stimulation of the same cascades. Um, and also, and it's anaphylaxis, just primary, it's primary anaphylaxis as opposed to the previous term, anaphylactoid. It's called primary anaphylaxis. And in addition, we see this in some venomous animals in particular. We can, there are people who are stung by various hymenopterans or have jumper ant stings like here, in particularly in Tasmania, who wind up with primary anaphylaxis, and it could be fatal. The There's no question it could be fatal, but I think the point is mm. that it's not, in general, when we're thinking of a, of these, it's not that they've been stung one, if the, right, this person gets stung again by a wasp, and they get stung by one wasp, it's not likely to have the same scenario again. This is just the sheer volume of melatonin that's getting inserted that's causing... Yeah, that's a whole nother issue. What I'm saying is, is just the actual term. If you can wind up with uh, for example, if you're bitten by a uh, burrowing asp and you've never had exposure to one before or products, I've seen atopy develop against some non-front fang bites from people who just handle snake sheds and their ur urates because there's some of the, my unfortunately late great mentor, Sherman Minton and I in the 80s were finding shared antigenic relationships among some snake species between their blood, their plasma, their defecate, and their venom. So some antigens are shared among different body parts. So some people just handle snakes to wind up becoming sensitized, but this is totally different. You could have a person, in one case, a Bedouin person who picked up an Atrictaspis engadensis, an Engadi burrowing asp who was bitten and wound up with primary anaphylaxis, never had exposure with one ever before. So yes, you can have another exposure the next time and wind up getting a, what is really would not be a sensitized bite from a different species, you would wind up just getting an anaphylactic response. But the point here is that you said correctly, Michael, that the volume of venom is extraordinary. It's, it's a very unusual circumstance because in some cases they're stung by 500, 900 individual insects. 
And so that actually in itself could produce a separate you know, syndrome that is recognizably different by the sheer amounts of venom, not only the melatonin, but the other components of the venom as well. Well, yeah, the melatonin is the component. It's, it's the haptin. That's, that's right. And, yeah, and the haptin directly degranulates the mast cell, and that's what differentiates that's- it from the anaphyl- classic anaphylaxis where we have IG, pre-exposure course, IgE. Correct. But clinically, and from what I remember of those O3 guidelines, the consensus statement is that they're basically treated the same, are they not? They're treated the same way. That's right. Excellent. That's good to get that clear. Well, does anybody want to talk about mushrooms? All right. I, I I love Amanita. Are there any things about Amanita that you all want to discuss that are salient. I mean, I love this article because I love the pretty picture that they gave. It looks like something from Tintin or something, the very colorful red mushroom with these yellowish white splotches. I mean, it looks attractive, but... Well, the the unusual thing about that is that most people who, you know, either intentionally or accidentally ingest that species survive. That's the unusual part. That is a very, actually an important paper in my view, Mm-hmm. Uh, because it 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 was uh, actually a dramatic response to the ingestion of those, and now we also there's a side issue, and that is with the alpha aminitans. There's a, an ongoing issue with whether psilocybin or penicillin G, uh, which which actually works. And we and if you look back at the, those data that uh, support their use, it's they're very very low power data, very low power data. We have very, very limited information about which works better. But now there's a study that came out recently where they use both. They actually use both in a very small number of patients. And it seemed to have a slight advantage. But I would opine that I would certainly use them. I have, particularly psilocybin. The data to support those is still needs a lot of robust work to, to get the best management strategy for patients. So dramatic results from ingestion of a species that normally is not fatal. Also an issue about, you know, management in the broader sense towards the group, towards the genus. So I agree that this is usually not a fatal ingestion. I think that we just need to make sure we're not confusing which Amanita we're talking about. In general, when we're talking about things like the, when we're talking about giving high-dose penicillin or, or milk thistle or any of those other therapies, those are specifically for Amanita phylloides, which are amatoxin-containing yes. mushrooms, as opposed yes. to things like Amanita muscaria, mm-hmm. which is a mucimol and ibotenic acid, yes. or Amanita smithiana that causes rhabdo and, to- and, and sorry, that causes late renal failure. And you're talking completely, even though they're all Amanita, they're entirely different toxicities, and we shouldn't mix up the treatments of those. No, no, no. That's why I was saying in general for the genus, some uh, of the requirement, because the, the greater concern is intervening towards, for example, a phylloides, Correct. Uh, which is very, very rapidly fulminant hepatic failure. And, and once it's there, the only treatment is, is, is transplant. Uh, liver tra- okay, folks, let's back up a bit here. Amanita muscaria, as I described, is a bright red mushroom with small white or yellow dot-like warts. It has in it an excitatory neurotoxin, ibotenic acid, with about a three-hour excitatory phase post-ingestion. Then, then a sedative effect ensues. Fatalities are unusual. Now, there is this Norse mythology, evidently, 
which posits that warriors could find these mushrooms growing on reindeer dung, which gave them superhuman strength for battle. This mushroom doesn't give the high that can be found in psilocybin mushrooms, and for the holidays, it might be a myth, or it might not. The Saint Nick Santa celebrated, now during Christmas, wears a suit that may have been influenced by this nice, bright, red mushroom. Amanita phalloides, the so-called death cap, is the one to watch closely. They're big, they're white. They can be mistaken for an edible mushroom by the inexperienced. After ingestion, nothing happens for six hours. Then, nausea, vomiting, and profuse watery diarrhea usually follows, and it can become intolerable enough to seek medical care. And a provider might think, well, it must be a GI bug. With our prolonged waiting times in the emergency department in the U.S. and Canada, this person with presumed quote-unquote gastroenteritis might remain in the waiting room. The dehydration could result in a little acute kidney injury getting worse, liver enzymes might rise, and a lactic acidosis could happen as that patient waits, waits, and waits. The diarrhea can last a day or longer, possibly causing hypotension. After all this, a quiescent phase where symptoms seem to resolve happens. It's kind of like acetaminophen toxicity or paracetamol toxicity if you're on the other side of the world. This is when the aminidin toxin is taken up by the hepatocytes, transported by this organic acid. It's called an oat transporter. Waiting a day or so allows this toxin to wreak havoc on RNA polymerase and protein synthesis of the hepatocytes, causing cellular, or as we would say, central lobular necrosis, resulting in liver failure. By this time, it might be too late, and a liver transplant will be necessary. Now, there have been other therapies that have been tried, but the big ones currently are NAC, N-acetylcysteine, used for acetaminophen toxicity. However, NAC provides glutathione, which isn't the problem with amanita, yet some theorize that the antioxidant properties of NAC could potentially help the liver. The evidence isn't really there, though. But early suspicion to prevent toxin entry into the liver is key. Inhibiting that oat enzyme is one way to prevent the uptake of toxin into the liver with these three treatments, high-dose penicillin. As Scott alluded to, might have some use if taken within 24 hours. It's not too risky, provided the patient doesn't have a penicillin allergy. Silymarin, the component in milk thistle that Michael mentioned, has been bandied about as a possible antidote. The pharmaceutical cogener of silymarin is silabinin, first available intravenously in Europe. Again, treatment and good supportive care, including volume repletion, is best within the first 24 hours. Anecdotally, there's also been a report or two of a single dose of orthampin. But who knows? Perhaps taking a history from an outdoors person with gastroenteritis should include asking about mushroom ingestions, since this poisoning, if recognized early, can affect outcome. This mushroom tends to grow in the fall at the bases of pine trees, oak trees, and chestnut trees. There is one quick comment, I think, and that is that, um, for example, the paper that was on demonstrating the usefulness of INR, which is, is a, you would think is a more obvious kind of uh, logical expectation for some coag- procoagulopathic 
snake bites. In their particular case, it was Trimerosaurus albolabris. Looking at, you know, comparison of uh, different tests like the 20-minute whole blood clotting test versus, uh, you know, an INR and just a, uh, a prothrombin time. The paper did a, uh, an interesting job of comparison and kind of reinforced what was expected by other isolated reports of uh, looking at uh, trimerosaurus species and measuring their coagulopathy in different uh, clinical scenarios in places where very often the only available test is a 20-minute whole blood clotting test. And when it can be performed is, is, is a very important test to perform early to get a sense of the direction of clinical management. But what I was starting to say was that in some species, which are mainly in Australian lapids, a t- common test that's attempted is point of care or ISTAT tests because they're very, very convenient. They could be done in, in uh, you know, austere places with small facilities. But in some snake venoms, a thromboplastin is normally added to those assays, which then stimulates the clotting effect. But yet when you have some snake venoms that have a prothrombin activator type of agent, such as like um, venom do, mm-hmm. you could get incorrect readings that indicate that you have normal clotting because the venom itself is stimulating a normal clotting process in that assay because uh, it's actually doing the cleavage. Where So right. you could have a patient entering a very severe coagulopathy and you'll get a, a false negative. It's not clear whether or not that ever happens with some of these other species, unlikely because they have totally different procoagulants in their venom. But the point is, it's important to do these type of assays so that these clinics tend to have an idea what is a really a more uh, a tested and true and accurate assay in order to determine the presence of coagulopathy in patients in, in these circumstances. That's all. You know, they don't talk about doing a fibrinogen or anything like that. And I don't know if you could explain what a whole blood clotting test. The issue with those is that it really needs to be done in a clean, non-soap exposed glass container. And of course, most of the time it's been used as the old glass test tubes. Some people were trying to use other things, which probably are useful, but it's been tested mainly in glass test tubes. The, the main issue is because of the, you know, the fracture, the micro fracture in the glass acts as the initiator, if you will, of tissue factor where it starts to produce the clot. That's why the glass is important. Interesting. Because you need to have those microfractures so that the clot has a spot to actually adhere to and begin. See, it stimulates the process. Whereas plastic actually is very hydrophobic and, and can actually repel and give you the, the false impression that you're not getting clotting. The validation of that has been done. It's, it, there's mixed data on it, but you know, meaning that I, I think that the, the sensitivity and specificity of it as a, as a whole is not the most trustworthy thing in the world in some circumstances. It really depends on operator familiarity with the test and the actual materials being used. And it always, anybody listening, trying to do that, always should run one in parallel with a normal healthy volunteer sample. And that way, if you have a control, and you do the patient's sample next to there, you're more likely to detect if you have gross clot formation and you have a thrombus developing in this in the tube or not. The, the, the one that's been most widely used is the whole blood clotting test 20, you know, which is the 20-minute whole blood clotting test. And the main thing there, again, is it's operated familiarity with the test as well as the actual implements being used. And in my opinion, definitely running a control in parallel from a normal healthy volunteer. And to end, thank you, doctors. Weinstein and Levine for a great toxinology overview and discussion.
Thank you so much. Thank you very much. That'll do it for this edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast. This is a production of Elsevier, so be sure to fill out the CME questions. Be safe, get educated, and have fun outside. And please contact us for further questions, and until next time.